Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. This is the time in which the divisions amongst us must be subordinated to our common ground. We don't have a choice anymore. We are all in this together. An attorney in Philadelphia dedicates much of his life to eliminating nuclear weapons in an increasingly perilous age. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Albert Einstein, who once predicted that the Fourth World War will be fought with sticks and stones. So destructive is the current arsenal of nuclear arms that the world as we know it could be simply wiped out if such weapons of mass destruction are set off. But this doomsday scenario can be avoided, says Jonathan Granoff, an attorney in Philadelphia, who has little time to practice law these days because he's so occupied with efforts at the UN and elsewhere to promote nuclear disarmament. He says we must work not only to abolish these spooky weapons, but also to heal the deep divisions among people that could provoke catastrophe. In this era when religious fanaticism seems a more dangerous force than ever, Jonathan Granoff ponders how far we've strayed from the origin of the great traditions. Every religious revelation affirms that behind the apparent changing scenes of the world, there is a a power of unconditional, unlimited love and compassion. That's true of Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. All of the great religions are founded on on that premise. And then doctrines arise, dogmas, ways of pursuing that great unconditional love. These doctrines and rituals are like a finger But if you only look at the finger and not that which the finger is pointing toward, you lose the meaning. If you forget that the purpose, the purpose of God's gift of religions is to open the human heart to receive God's blessing, and you use religion uh, to separate and to um, exalt human arrogance, then instead of it it, uh, bringing humanity together, it, it, it it separates. And that comes from a fear of of living under the sovereignty 
of this great mystery of unconditional love. Well, we certainly see religious uh, extremism, fundamentalism practiced all over the world. What goes wrong when a person is seeking a sacred path and somehow ends up committing violence? Usually they're trying to protect the truth instead of seeking refuge in the truth. Usually they're saying, they're saying, I, my group, singularly has the truth, and we must protect it from them. And they have forgotten the very basic ethical principle that you can find in every religious system. In Hinduism, they state it as, this is the sum of duty. Do not unto others that which would cause you pain if done to you. In Islam, no one of you is a believer until he desires for the other that which he desires for himself. So there is a, in, in, in fundamentalism, there is a complete ignoring of the basic ethical foundation of every religious faith. And that is the insanity. It is a denial of the value of those with whom you disagree. Our humanity only grows when we learn to love the person who is different than us. My son, when he was uh, 16, went to Hiroshima uh, and, and worked on a documentary film interviewing uh, survivors of, of the atomic bomb, the Hibakusha they're called. And he came back and he said, Dad, uh, I really didn't understand what, what had happened until I met people who were there. Um, and it was human to me after that. But what really hit me, Dad, was when I went to the Peace Museum in, in Osaka. And it, there were two rooms. He said, one room, there was uh, pictures of the Holocaust. And he said, because of, uh, of my, my son was speaking, my wife is uh, from Armenian heritage, because of our Armenian heritage, I had a sensitivity to genocide and the Holocaust. And because of my Jewish background, I had a sensitivity to genocide and the Holocaust. And I could identify with those people. But after that, then when I went into the next room, which were the same pictures that I had seen in Hiroshima, it hit me. You cannot kill massive numbers of people until you first dehumanize them. And you cannot dehumanize people until you first deny the capacity, the human capacity of compassion within oneself. So the first act before killing the other is denying one's own compassion. And I said to my son, I haven't learned more than that yet. Now I really believe you're a man. Perhaps because it's just too terrible to contemplate, most of us don't give much conscious thought to the possibility of nuclear war. It may have seemed that the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 would have removed the nuclear threat. But in fact, today, both the United States and Russia maintain a huge, unfathomable arsenal of mass destruction pointed at populations on both sides. The existence of thousands of nuclear weapons is the most dangerous legacy of the Cold War. President Barack Obama in Prague, the Czech Republic, April 2009. 
No nuclear war was fought between the United States and the Soviet Union. But generations lived with the knowledge that their world could be erased in a single flash of light. Today, the Cold War has disappeared. But thousands of those weapons have not. In a strange turn of history, the threat of global nuclear war has gone down, but the risk of a nuclear attack has gone up. More nations have acquired these weapons. Testing has continued. Black market trade in nuclear secrets and nuclear materials abound. The technology to build a bomb has spread. Terrorists are determined to buy, build, or steal one. Our efforts to contain these dangers are centered on a global nonproliferation regime, but as more people and nations break the rules, we could reach the point where the center cannot hold. The superpowers did take a step toward disarmament in April 2010, when Russian President Dmitry Medvedev joined President Obama in signing a new treaty aimed at reducing their nuclear arsenals by thousands of weapons on each side. Now, understand, this matters to people everywhere. One nuclear weapon exploded in one city, be it New York or Moscow, Islamabad or Mumbai, Tokyo or Tel Aviv, Paris or Prague, could kill hundreds of thousands of people. And no matter where it happens, there is no end to what the consequences might be. Today, Jonathan Granoff serves as president of the Global Security Institute outside Philadelphia. Had the terrorists on September 11, 2001, utilized a nuclear device, because it's, it's really inappropriate to call them weapons, a nuclear device, because they're on a scale uh, not, not the same as a weapon, uh, you would have had heat several times hotter than the face of the sun, a, a uh, vaporization several miles diameter from ground zero, and uh, the city of New York would have been uh, functionally wiped out. It wouldn't have been a trauma to our national psyche. It would have been a true trauma to the world's security. The first thing we need to do is get control of the nuclear material, the fissile material, the, uh, the, the potential suitcase bomb, the bomb in a tugboat, the bomb in a bale of marijuana. Those are the real dangers that we have. And we're not, we, we have not taken the steps to strengthen the International Atomic Energy Agency. We've not taken the steps to put any money behind uh, a, a meaningful verification system and strengthening the security regimes that we need to make sure that terrorists cannot get a hold of nuclear material and build a suitcase bomb and uh, take out Cairo, London, Washington. This, this, I consider this to be highly irresponsible. And the very first thing we have to do is get control of the fissile material. And can that be done? It can't be done overnight. But if we don't begin doing it, it'll never get done. Um, my friend Ambassador Richard Butler, who was head of the UN Commission on Iraq, always reminds people that nuclear material leaves a fairly large footprint. It can be tracked. And Explain uh, that. Well, it leaves radioactive traces, and you can, you can, you can track it down, unlike, unlike a conventional weapon, which doesn't do that. And uh, 
and you you can't simply produce uh, uh, and the material is volatile it's difficult to transport it's dip- difficult to control so it can be it can be tracked but uh, the international atomic energy agency has a budget of less than half a billion dollars uh, so we have n- n- never funded a serious verification regime and there's a there's a need to do that the the russians desperately need to do that there's an enormous amount of inadequately safeguarded nuclear material in Russia. Well, one hears of this sort of black market in which nuclear secrets and nuclear materials are trafficked. How concerned are you about that? Very concerned, and that's why we have to immediately put real money into getting control of the nuclear material. Nuclear weapons are immoral. They're impractical. They're militarily impractical. And, you know, we spent over $5.5 trillion as a nation, according to the Brookings Institute, in developing those arsenals. For all the nightmarish danger posed by the existence of thousands of nuclear warheads, Some historians believe that the prospect of using these weapons was so terrifying that it actually restrained the big powers from attacking each other. It was a popular Cold War theory known as MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. But Jonathan Granoff just calls it mad and says the immense nuclear buildup on both sides was a vast waste of resources. What would have happened if the money had been spent to, uh, to promote uh, free trade? Five and a half trillion dollars is an awful lot of money. It turned out that the Soviet Union was not as powerful as we had thought that it was. It's, it's basically a developing nation with a developed nation's military arsenal. What would have happened if, if, if we had uh, pursued other courses? I, I don't really know. It's a question that's, that that I can only give a speculative answer to. The fact is, we had up to 80,000 nuclear weapons, and only several hundred are needed to, to destroy all life on the planet. From any practical point of view, it made no sense. Uh, Stansfield Turner, the former director of the CIA, has a book uh, called Caging the Nuclear Genie, in which he talks about, when he was head of the CIA, uh, commissioning a study to, in, to, to investigate whether the uh, targeting was redundant, whether, whether we didn't have already too many nuclear weapons, and concluded that it was absolutely insane. And yet we kept building them, and they kept building them. We wasted not only great amounts of treasure, but great amounts of, of scientific intelligence in the pursuit of these horrific devices. How much was profiteering by weapons manufacturers a factor in this overkill arsenal? I don't believe, I believe that it was more of a passion based on insecurity and an ideology run out of control. I don't really believe that it was so much the, 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 the pure motive of greed, so much as one of ideology, a, a total demonization of the other that was going on on both sides, that Russia really believed that we wanted to take them over, that the Soviet Union really believed that. Um, I've studied the Cuban Missile Crisis, and both sides, uh, we came, you know, we came within a half an hour of ending life on the planet Earth. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States 
requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. President John F. Kennedy in an address from the White House, October 22, 1962. My fellow citizens, let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. No one can foresee precisely what course it will take or what course or casualties will be incurred. We still live under an irrational threat. Right now, um, Russia, Russia has several nuclear weapons on high alert status, on the same launch on warning status they were during the height of the Cold War. January 25th in 1995, there was a launch of a, of a satellite off the coast of Norway. The Russians picked that up as a Trident launch. Boris Yeltsin had less than eight, president of Russia had less than eight minutes to decide whether to launch a retaliatory strike. It turned out it was a weather satellite that was going to the North Pole, and the command and control had not notified him. But he had eight minutes to make that decision. That is an unreasonable risk to place humanity to live under. It's immoral for us to live under that threat. That's the greatest threat that we face. And it's not enough to, to uh, cut down on the number while at the same time we are, we're discussing building, uh, resuming nuclear testing and building mini-nukes, building, building nuclear weapons of a smaller yield that we might be able to use. It's the wrong direction. It's time now to really end the Cold War and to create a cooperative, multilateral security regime. Russia doesn't want to take over the United States. We know that. They want to build their own economy. China wants to build their economy. We are now interrelated in a global economy. There's two visions of the modern age that our grandparents didn't have. One vision is the mushroom cloud. That's science run amok, stripped of the constraints of law and morality. It's the horse without any reins of law and morality. Our grandparents would see a mushroom cloud. It wouldn't have that emotional resonance that it has for us. The other image of the modern age that science has gifted us with the powers of science has gifted us with, is the picture of the planet Earth from outer space. One mysterious living organism in which all of the passions of the saints and sinners, the wise and the foolish, the good, the evil, every single drama of human, human history is played out without borders, without differences, as one living holistic organism, mysteriously sustained in infinite space. Where, where we are all interrelated. That image our grandparents did not have. But we have it. We have these two images. And this is our choice. We're either going to have a sense of global responsibility in which we start uh, collectively addressing the real threats that we face now. Um, pollution of the oceans, depletion of the ozone, gross disparities, morally unacceptable disparities of wealth, the destruction of our rainforests. All of these issues require cooperation amongst the nations of the world. No one nation or even small group of very powerful nations can address these problems alone. They require the community of peoples and nations. The other model is the quest for sp full spectrum dominance. 
by one nation or a small group of nations over everybody else. I believe that that quest is, uh, is the ultimate arrogance. It's the problem of man trying to rule the world instead of trying to rule his own heart. You mentioned the incident in which the Russians mistook a, a weather craft for a weapon. How grave is the danger, apart from military strategists deliberately setting off a nuclear exchange, of human or mechanical error? General Lee Butler, who was head of the Strategic Air Command of the United States and who put together the SIAP, the Single Integrated Operating Plan, uh, in charge of all of our nuclear weapons. He was in charge of the nuclear arsenal during the Gulf War. Said very simply, it defies human logic to, to anticipate that we will not have a nuclear catastrophe by accident or design unless we begin to get rid of them. There have been numerous computer errors there have been broken arrows, uh, nuclear bombs accidentally. There was a nuclear bomb accidentally dropped in North Carolina. There was a nuclear, a nuclear uh, a plane uh, crashed off the coast of Spain. There have been numerous accidents. Anybody listening have a computer? <laughs> the, you know, the, uh, we, we cannot rely on technology to solve that which is essentially a human problem, which is our, 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 the requirement that we learn to live together and that we learn to say no to. Just because we can build something, that doesn't mean that we have to build it. Do you ever feel that the proliferation of nuclear weapons has simply gone too far and that the snowball effect is unstoppable? On the contrary, it is very... We not, only, uh, not only is it controllable... But we have a legal and moral duty to do that. And uh, uh, the president of the United States has described them as evil. President Reagan uh, tried very hard uh, with Gorbachev and Reykjavik and to, uh, to, to come to a, a, a total abolition of them and would have achieved it had it not been for the people pursuing the weaponization of space in the United States. That's what, that's what Gorbachev could not accept. I think that, uh, that it's well within our power and our capacity. Um, I, I, I was struck by a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful sh sleepwalking to Armageddon that was on 60, 60 Minutes 2. Great producer George Kreil uh, did, and which they interviewed missileers of Russia and missileers in the United States. And what you saw was these young men and women, uh, quite sane, ready to blow up the world now, now the Cold War's over, ready to blow up the world in the pursuit of national security, in the pursuit of something that they saw as good, without any ill will toward the people against whom they have their missiles pointed. That's the amazing thing, that they had no, that the Russians had no ill will toward the Americans. And obviously we as Americans, we have no ill will toward the Russians. I don't know anybody who would like to blow up Russia now? I don't know anybody who would like to drop a nuke on Moscow and kill tens of millions of innocent people. How significant do you think is our psychological aversion to thinking about 
nuclear Armageddon. It, it is an all but incomprehensible thought. It's difficult enough to think about one's own mortality. It's, it's overwhelming to think about the, uh, the mortality of the species, and that's what we're talking about. This global responsibility has never been placed on humanity before. Uh, and so it's very difficult for people to think. We think, well, I'll protect my nation, and that will be enough. Not now. A hydrofluorocarbon molecule from, from a refrigerant in Chile does not care about national boundaries as it depletes the ozone over, uh, over uh, Madison, Wisconsin. It doesn't care about national boundaries. National boundaries don't mean anything in the age of science. Uh, AIDS and many other viruses jump over borders they don't care. Um, the oceans don't recognize national boundaries. We now have to have a sense of global responsibility. And the nuclear, the reason that I've, I've put my own time and effort into nucle the nuclear issue is not because I believe that if we solve the get rid of nuclear weapons, we'll all of a sudden have paradise on Earth. But I think that it forces us to realize our collective interconnectedness as a human family. It forces us to think holistically. It forces us to realize that our fates is, is interconnected with our alleged adversary, that if we lob nuclear weapons at an adversary, we suffer as well. We cut off the limb that we're sitting on. The whole world suffers because of it. So this is a time uh, in which we have to heed the call that saints and the wise have always called us to, which is a sense of the unity of the human family, that our hearts now have to get larger than the powers of science. Our compassion and our wisdom have to be more powerful than the tools that science has gifted us with. We can't be children anymore. The little boys have got to give up their toys because the stakes are too high right now. Jonathan, you're an attorney. We're sitting here in your law office strewn with legal papers and, and documents and books, who ends up spending most of his time preoccupied with the quest to bring about a more peaceful world, a world free of devastating weapons. What motivates that work? My own conscience. I, I am very clear that, uh, that I am an insignificant player in trying to save the world, that this is not my world or your world, this is God's world, and that we have the privilege of being here for only a short time, and that there's, that there's a dynamic of, of uh, caring that we have, and we either can ignore it or, or, or follow it. What's the hardest part of being able to lead a life according to those ideals? My own uh, selfishness, my own arrogance, my own forgetfulness. That's the hardest part. There's nothing, there's nothing that, uh, that is as threatening to my personal state of well-being as much as my own ignorance. And uh, 
anger, uh, jealousy, envy, pettiness. The things that separate us from one another are exactly the things that separate each of us from our own higher calling, our own higher nature. So the, thing, the most difficult thing for me is me. <laughs> Attorney Jonathan Granoff in Philadelphia, president of the Global Security Institute. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Francis McGovern. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Preventing Nuclear War, with Jonathan Granoff, is Humankind Program number 53. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.